what is going on mere mortals? My name is John Solo, and when you think about it, vampires are basically the superheroes of the monster world. They can jump off tall buildings and land safely on the ground below, they shoot guns at bad guys, they play baseball, and they can count to some really high numbers. Four! Four flowers! But vampires haven't always been this overpowered. In fact, in the early days of folklore, they hardly had any powers at all. They were basically just zombies with a more particular diet. And they could teleport. So how did vampires evolve from mangled undead nightmares who shamble through the moonlight to consume the blood of the innocent into handsome schoolboys who shimmer in the sunlight and consume the blood of the innocent? That's exactly what we're going to cover in this episode of the Messed Up Origins podcast, but I'm also going to take this exploration a bit further. After we travel the long and winding road that vampires took to become what they are today, we're gonna analyze their oddly specific vulnerabilities like garlic and sunlight and figure out where the hell those came from. And because vampires are not the only bloodsuckers in folklore and mythology, we're gonna look at some similar figures in other cultures that you may find even more terrifying, including a certain Egyptian goddess who could be considered the first vampire ever. For those of you who like learning about the most messed up stories found in folklore and myth, be sure to drain all the blood out of those five star and follow buttons. Not only will that get more content like this delivered to your device three times a week, but you'll also be helping our show reach more eyes and ears. And without further ado, the very messed up origins of vampires. Chapter one, vampires in folklore. So, in order to figure out where vampires came from, we all have to agree on what vampires are. Because like I said, they've gone through some pretty big changes in recent decades. The good news for us is that regardless of the creative liberties that artists and authors have taken, almost all folklore vampires have two things in common. They're the undead return to life and they drink blood or at the very least, they consume the life force of the living. But note my emphasis on the word folklore, because while vampiric creatures have existed in pretty much all the mythologies, Mesopotamians, Greeks, Hebrews, Egyptians, those vampires are different in one important aspect. They were never human. They're not from the mortal plane of existence. They're deities and demons from the divine realm. So while vampiric creatures have existed in mythological form for thousands and thousands of years, the undead vampires of folklore are a relatively recent invention coming from terrifying tales that were recorded in Southeastern Europe between the 16th and 18th centuries. The most famous of these tales comes from the Serbian village of Kisilova, now called Kisiljevo, and there's a few different versions of what exactly happened, but all of them center around the death of Peter Blahojevic in 1725. And the reason that Peter's death is significant is because he was accused of murdering nine people after he died. You see, in the eight days after Peter was buried, nine other perfectly healthy Kisilova residents suddenly found themselves sick and dying from a loss of blood. And these nine residents all claimed to have been attacked by Peter during the night. Other residents said they had seen Peter lumbering through the village at night, and his wife Anna said he had even forced his way into their house to ask for his shoes. No word on if she gave them to him or not. 
Now, there were a few possible explanations for what was going on in Kisilova, but two theories were particularly popular. Number one, Peter's corpse had escaped its grave and was attacking former neighbors to drink their blood. Or two, undead Peter had escaped his grave and was lingering around the village, spreading disease that caused blood loss and hallucinations. See, back in the day, the fear of vampires wasn't just that they were violent, bloodthirsty murderers. Since they were technically dead and dead things are major sources of disease, these monsters were also viewed as plague carriers, making them even more dangerous. But the problem with both of the Kisilovans vampire theories was that they could easily be proven false by looking at Peter's burial site, which had remained undisturbed this entire time. If the Kisilovans were right, they would have to destroy Peter's body, but they didn't want to dig up and desecrate his grave unless they knew for sure that he was the culprit, and it wasn't some other killer on the loose. Well, the residents all said to hell with decorum when one morning, Anna Blahoyevich discovered her son's body drained of all its blood on the floor of her home. It appeared that her husband had once again returned home, so she got in contact with church officials to figure out what to do. The clergymen decided they had to see once and for all if Peter could be responsible for the attacks and illnesses. Sure, his grave appeared the same as the day they buried him, but it was possible that he was using some demonic vampire magic to escape. So, left with no other choice, they dug up his body, and they were horrified by what they saw. When they opened Peter's casket, they were dumbfounded to see that his body had hardly decomposed at all over the last few weeks. Even worse, his teeth had grown larger, his fingernails longer, he had blood stains around his mouth, and his stomach was bloated as if he had just finished a decent-sized meal. The Kisilovans' worst fears had been confirmed. Peter Blahoyevich, their neighbor, their friend, their brother, had become a vampire, and his body would have to be destroyed. To do this, they stabbed him in the heart with a wooden stake several times, causing him to bleed fresh blood from his ears and mouth. Then they burned his body, destroying the vessel for whatever disease or demonic spirit had taken control of him. And while some listeners may find that to be a little excessive, records indicate that the attacks on Kisilova's residence stopped completely after that day. Now, there's a few reasons I wanted to share that story with you. Number one is that it's the earliest documented instance of vampire hysteria in all of history. So that's just straight up fascinating. Reason number two is that it perfectly encapsulates the concept of vampires in folklore. They weren't originally sexy, rich, charismatic lords of the manor. They were literally bloated, bloody corpses, which actually explains where they got some of the qualities they've maintained to this day. Like when the Kisilovans saw Peter's body with his bigger teeth and sharper nails and blood all over as if he had just eaten, he may have appeared to be a blood-sucking monster, but these are all very typical symptoms of decomposition. His nails and teeth were not growing, his body was just shrinking, and the blood on his mouth and clothes was not from his victims, it was being expelled by his own body. The reason his grave appeared undisturbed was not because of his vampire teleportation abilities, it's because he never left his grave. I know, that one's really hard to believe, but you just gotta trust me on this. You may have also noticed that all of Peter's attacks only happened at night. This did not actually have anything to do with his vampirism, but more so the fact that night has always been the more dangerous time for humans to not be in shelter, mostly because of the lack of visibility. As we learned in the Wendigo story we covered a few weeks ago, not being able to see left you vulnerable to monsters and men with bad intentions. It also led to people's imaginations conjuring up some terrifying visions when their eyes couldn't make out what was lurking beyond the light of their fire. 
the whole vampires are killed by sunlight thing didn't even come around until the Nosferatu movie in 1922. Spoiler alert if you hadn't gotten around to seeing it yet. Nosferatu was inspired by Bram Stoker's Dracula, published in 1897, but Dracula isn't hurt by sunlight at all. His powers are significantly weakened during the daytime, and he can't change his form as easily, but he goes out in the sun pretty regularly in the book. Also, I think this is where I'm supposed to make a joke about Edward Cullen glimmering in the sunlight, but 17 years after those books came out, it just feels like low-hanging fruit. Though I do think it's funny that vampires manage to evolve from bloated corpses to having literal diamonds for skin. Talk about a glow-up. There it is. There's my joke. Well, unlike the attacks in Kelasova, the vampire evolution did not happen overnight. For well over a century, the stories people told about vampires were similar to the one you just heard about Peter, and they were manifested out of people's fear of death and disease in the mysteries surrounding them. Vampires did not exist in the romanticized, tall, dark, and handsome form until the 1800s, and there are two stories that deserve credit for rehabilitating the vampire's image. Chapter 2 Vampires Humanized Without a doubt, the two most influential vampire tales ever told are The Vampire, written by John Polidori in 1819, and the aforementioned Bram Stoker's Dracula. Just to be clear, this episode is not the messed up origins of Dracula, so we won't be going over these stories in great detail or talking about how Dracula was allegedly inspired by Vlad the Impaler. Those subjects deserve whole episodes of their own, but the book's contributions to vampire lore have to be mentioned. Because Polidori's The Vampire was the first time ever that a vampire wasn't a hungry, revenge-seeking corpse. Instead, he's a suave British nobleman named Lord Ruthven who hangs out with aristocrats and preys on members of high society. He's also pure evil, and by the end of the story, he fakes his own death, manipulates the main character Aubrey until he goes insane, then marries, murders, and eats Aubrey's sister. No happily ever after this time around. Bram Stoker took this version of the vampire, the wealthy aristocrat, and incorporated some more supernatural elements into his original character, Dracula. Like his ability to change form that I mentioned earlier, Stoker took that idea from vampiric creatures in Romanian folklore called Strigwa, which can transform into owls, but he chose to make Dracula turn into a bat, potentially because stories about vampire bat discoveries were making headlines in the late 1800s. But it's not just transformation. Dracula is actually the progenitor of tons of vampire abilities that are now considered universal. Superhuman strength and agility, hypnosis and telepathy, no reflection and mirrors, immunity to most weapons. He made killing vampires an even bigger pain in the ass than it already was in the days of folklore. Joker did add a few vulnerabilities and handicaps of his own though. Like Dracula had to have the soil of his homeland Transylvania near him in order to rest and recover. He also couldn't enter someone's home unless he was invited in. But because humans were dealing with vampires like Peter Blahoyevich for hundreds of years before Dracula was written, many of the Count's weaknesses were pre-established. Before I tell you the proper way to defend yourself from vampires though, I'll tell you how to protect yourself online with today's sponsor, ExpressVPN. As you all know, I researched some pretty messed up subjects for this show, and I personally don't want to find out what list I'd be included on if word got out that I was Googling nursery rhymes and cannibalism within 10 minutes of each other. But nowadays, our entire lives are recorded and saved on the internet, and not just the content we post on social media. 
every single website that you visit is recorded by your internet service provider. And if you live in the United States, like me, your personal data is being sold to advertisers. Legally, might I add. That's why lately I've been using ExpressVPN whenever I go online. Well, I've technically been using them for like eight years now, but even more so lately. For those unfamiliar, ExpressVPN is an app that reroutes your internet connection through their secure servers so your provider can't see what sites you visit. And ExpressVPN servers encrypt 100% of your data with the most powerful encryption technology available to keep it secure. And I know this may sound a little complicated, but it's really very simple. You just download ExpressVPN like you would any other app, then you press one button to turn it on, and boom. It's working seamlessly in the background to protect you, your data, and your peace of mind. So if you want to join me and protect your online activity with the VPN rated number one by Business Insider and a whole bunch of other places, visit my exclusive link, expressvpn.com slash johnsolo, and you can get three bonus months free on a one-year package. That's expressvpn.com slash johnsolo. Chapter 3. Cause and Defense so we've all heard the typical vampire weaknesses, garlic, holy objects, steaks, fire, but have you ever wondered why these were their weaknesses? Like why garlic and not cilantro? Why steaks instead of battle axes? Well, it turns out there is some logic behind the specificity of their vulnerabilities. And I just wanna add, this might be my favorite thing I learned while making this episode. Because most of these weaknesses originated from the very real belief that vampires were dead and buried people who had come back to life. It was decided that in order to stop these dead and buried people from transforming into mist and escaping their graves like Peter Blahoyevich did, they had to be stabbed through the heart with a stake and pinned to their coffins. Sometimes their mouths were even filled with rocks or dirt or bricks to stop them from feeding if they did come alive. In some countries, like Russia, the stake had to be made out of aspen wood, because legend said that's what Christ's cross was made of. Holy objects like aspen wood, crucifixes, and holy water were also good to have in your arsenal because vampires go against the natural order established by God making them unholy at best and demonic at worst. But what about the garlic? Well, if you're familiar with miasma theory, this will make instant sense to you, but for the uninitiated, there was a few thousand year period where humans believed that diseases could be spread and detected through smelling foul odors. Now, obviously germs can go airborne and get you sick. We've learned a lot about that since 2020 but germs don't occupy the smell. That's why spraying Febreze on a pile of dead bodies does nothing to sanitize them. Trust me. They didn't realize that back in the day though, so people used pungent odors like garlic to drive away the bad smelling germ-filled air. And in this specific case, air that was filled with whatever demonic disease was causing vampirism. Speaking of causes, we never established how vampires are created. And I'll admit, that's because I forgot. But that was a really smooth transition, so we're just gonna roll with it. Depending on the time period and country you're asking in, vampirism could be caused by a number of things. Being infected by the aforementioned vampire germs was one of the more popular theories, and thanks to Dracula, that method would ultimately evolve into being bitten or wounded by a vampire. In Russian folklore, if you practiced witchcraft, committed suicide, or rebelled against the Orthodox Church in any way, you could be cursed to return as a vampire. You also had to treat all of your wounds with boiling water lest ye become a vampire. 
I realize it's only a paper cut, but these are the rules, son. My favorite cause came from Slavic and Chinese folklore though. In those cultures, any corpse that was jumped over by an animal, most often a dog or cat, could become a vampire. I'll admit, I don't totally get that one, but I think there's a lesson in there about respecting proper burial rites. So now that you know the defenses against and causes of vampirism, you should be safer when traveling through Europe. Well, certain parts of Europe. Just be careful, because there's plenty of other bloodsuckers around the world that you gotta watch out for. You know what? I should probably tell you about a few of them just to be safe. Chapter 4. Bloodsuckers from Around the World so this is another section that is filled with subjects that deserve their own episode, and I plan on making several of them down the line. You can basically think of this episode as the start of our vampire series. But there are some truly disgusting and horrifying blood-sucking creatures in other cultures that I want to mention today, particularly the first vampire ever. Her name was Sekhmet, and she was an Egyptian goddess. Now Sekhmet wasn't like vampires from folklore. She was a lion-headed warrior goddess that served Ra, the all-powerful god of the sun. And one day, Ra sent her to Earth to slaughter any mortals who were conspiring against him. Sekhmet did as she was told, but after getting a little taste of blood, her thirst could not be quenched. Literally, she was drinking the blood of her victims, and she had killed almost all of the mortals in Egypt when Ra had to step in and stop her. To do this, the sun god poured alcohol that he had dyed red into the Nile, turning the whole river red. Then, when Sekhmet came across it, she thought it was blood and started drinking. The goddess ended up drinking so much that she passed out, and when she woke up, she had calmed down enough to return to Ra. From that point onward though, the goddess would always be associated with her consumption of blood, and her worshippers would actually honor her by dyeing their own alcohol red. To be fair, there are other gods in the Egyptian pantheon that people made blood sacrifices to, like Osiris and Set, but there's no myth or texts mentioning those gods consuming blood like Sekhmet did, which is why we're saying she's the oldest vampire in myth. Now you might be thinking, John, Sekhmet does sound horrifying, but you said there were disgusting blood-sucking creatures. Tell me more about those. Well, to those people I say, have you heard of the Mananangal? She's a monstrous spirit from the Philippines who detaches her torso from her lower half, sprouts bat wings, then flies to the nearest sleeping pregnant woman she can find so she can scoop out the woman's organs with her long tongue. But if that wasn't gnarly enough for you, then maybe you'll like the Penangalan from Malaysian folklore. She's similar to the Mananangal in that she detaches her head and organs from her body nightly to go hunting for pregnant women. Something about these pregnant ladies, man. Do you think stem cells had anything to do with them being so tasty? Another voracious vampire is the Sequoyant from Caribbean folklore. She's a reclusive old woman by day, but by night she strips her wrinkled skin off and takes her true form as a fireball. That's right, a fireball. And as a fireball, she flies across the sky in search of a human or animal whose blood she can drink. In China, they have a creature that's actually pretty similar to the vampire called a Yangshi. It's a corpse that's either been resurrected by necromancers or has a soul trapped in its body. The Yangshi hops around and kills living creatures so it can absorb their life force, but you can easily escape them by throwing some rice on the ground. Apparently, they have to count any small objects that are thrown their way. So that's where the Count from Sesame Street's obsession with numbers comes in. Here I thought it was just a pun. Turns out, it's a real component of vampire lore. 
Oh, no, you've oh. eaten the apples. Now I have nothing left to oh. go. Apples so delicious, me sorry. Okay, in reality, that's probably just a coincidence, but you gotta admit, it makes for a great closing joke. I could sit here with you for hours talking about vampires, but we gotta wrap it up sometime. But I do wanna hear your thoughts on this episode. Did you know that vampires came from humans' fears of death and disease? Or that vampires existed in other cultures, folklore, and mythology? Let me know in a comment down below or by hitting me up on the socials. Links below for those who need them. Then, if you enjoyed this episode, be sure to drain the blood from those five-star and follow buttons because that goes a long way in making the algorithm serve up our show to more eyes and ears. I'll speak with you all again next week with the final episode of our annual Spoopathon, where I'll be discussing the truly messed up origins of none other than Sweeney Todd, the demon barber of Fleet Street. Until then, my name is John Solo, and don't forget, John shot first.